Chapter 6, Part 1 of The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Dan. PeterDanAuthor.com. The Lady Patroness of Michaelis, the Ticket of Leave Apostle of Humanitarian Hopes, was one of the most influential and distinguished connections of the Assistant Commissioner's wife, whom he called Annie, and treated still rather as a not very wise and utterly inexperienced young girl. But she had consented to accept him on a friendly footing, which was by no means the case with all of his wife's influential connections. Married young and splendidly at some remote epoch of the past, she had had for a time a close view of great affairs, and even of some great men. She herself was a great lady. Old now in the number of her years, she had that sort of exceptional temperament which defies time with scornful disregard, as if it were rather a vulgar convention submitted to by the mass of inferior mankind. Many other conventions easier to set aside, alas, failed to obtain her recognition, also on temperamental grounds, either because they bored her, or else because they stood in the way of her scorns and sympathies. Admiration was a sentiment unknown to her. It was one of the secret griefs of her most noble husband against her. First, as always, more or less tainted with mediocrity, and next, as being in a way at admission of inferiority and both were frankly inconceivable to her nature. To be fearlessly outspoken in her opinions came easily to her, since she judged solely from the standpoint of her social position. She was equally untrammelled in her actions, and as her tactfulness proceeded from genuine humanity, her bodily vigour remained remarkable, and her superiority was serene and cordial. Three generations had admired her infinitely, and the last she was likely to see had pronounced her a wonderful woman. Meantime, intelligent, with a sort of lofty simplicity, and curious at heart, but not like many women merely of social gossip, she amused her age by attracting within her ken, through the power of her great, almost historical social prestige, everything that rose above the dead level of mankind, lawfully or unlawfully, by position, wit, audacity, fortune or misfortune. Royal Highnesses, artists, men of science, young statesmen, and charlatans of all ages and conditions, who, unsubstantial and light, bobbing up like corks, show best the direction of the surface currents, had been welcomed in that house, listened to, penetrated, understood, appraised for her own edification. In her own words, she liked to watch what the world was coming to and as she had a practical mind, her judgment of men and things, though based on special prejudices, was seldom totally wrong, and almost never wrong-headed. Her drawing-room was probably the only place in the wide world where an assistant commissioner of police could meet a convict liberated on a ticket of leave on other than professional and official ground. Who had brought Michaelis there one afternoon, the assistant commissioner did not remember very well, he had a notion it must have been a certain member of Parliament of illustrious parentage and unconventional sympathies, which were the standing joke of the comic papers. The notabilities, and even the simple notorieties of the day, brought each other freely to that temple of an old woman's not ignoble curiosity. 
You never could guess whom you were likely to come upon being received in semi-privacy within the faded blue silk and gilt frame screen, making a cosy nook for a couch and a few armchairs in the great drawing-room with its hum of voices and the groups of people seated or standing in the light of six tall windows. Michaelis had been the object of a revulsion of popular sentiment, the same sentiment which years ago had applauded the ferocity of the life sentence passed upon him for complicity in a rather mad attempt to rescue some prisoners from a police van. The plan of the conspirators had been to shoot down the horses and overpower the escort. Unfortunately, one of the police constables got shot too. He left a wife and three small children and the death of that man aroused through the length and breadth of the realm, for whose defence, welfare and glory men die every day as a matter of duty, an outburst of furious indignation, of a raging implacable pity for the victim. Three ringleaders got hanged. Michaelis, young and slim, locksmith by trade, and great frequenter of evening schools, did not even know that anybody had been killed, his part with a few others being to force open the door at the back of the special conveyance. When arrested, he had a bunch of skeleton keys in one pocket, a heavy chisel in another, and a short crowbar in his hand, neither more nor less than a burglar. But no burglar would have received such a heavy sentence. The death of the constable had made him miserable at heart, but the failure of the plot also. He did not conceal either of these sentiments from his impanelled countrymen, and that sort of compunction appeared shockingly imperfect to the crammed court. The judge, on passing sentence, commented feelingly upon the depravity and callousness of the young prisoner. That made the groundless fame of his condemnation. The fame of his release was made for him on no better grounds by people who wished to exploit the sentimental aspect of his imprisonment, either for purposes of their own or for no intelligible purpose. He let them do so in the innocence of his heart and the simplicity of his mind. Nothing that happened to him individually had any importance. He was like those saintly men whose personality is lost in the contemplation of their faith. His ideas were not in the nature of convictions, they were inaccessible to reasoning. They formed in all their contradictions and obscurities an invincible and humanitarian creed which he confessed, rather than preached, with an obstinate gentleness, a smile of pacific assurance on his lips, and his candid blue eyes cast down because the sight of faces troubled his inspiration developed in solitude. In that characteristic attitude, pathetic in his grotesque and incurable obesity, which he had to drag like a galley-slave's bullet to the end of his days, the assistant commissioner of police beheld the ticket-of-leave apostle filling a privileged armchair within the screen. He sat there by the head of the old lady's couch, mild-voiced and quiet, with no more self-consciousness than a very small child, and with something of a child's charm the appealing charm of trustfulness. Confident of the future, whose secret ways had been revealed to him within the four walls of a well-known penitentiary, he had no reason to look with suspicion upon anybody. If he could not give the great and curious lady a very definite idea as to what the world was coming to, he had managed without effort to impress her by his unembittered faith, by the sterling quality of his optimism. 
A certain simplicity of thought is common to serene souls at both ends of the social scale. The great lady was simple in her own way. His views and beliefs had nothing in them to shock or startle her, since she judged them from the standpoint of her lofty position. Indeed, her sympathies were easily accessible to a man of that sort. She was not an exploiting capitalist herself. She was, as it were, above the play of economic conditions. And she had a great capacity of pity for the more obvious forms of common human miseries, precisely because she was such a complete stranger to them that she had to translate her conception into terms of mental suffering before she could grasp the notion of their cruelty. The assistant commissioner remembered very well the conversation between these two. He had listened in silence. It was something as exciting in a way, and even touching in its foredoomed futility, as the efforts at moral intercourse between the inhabitants of remote planets. But this grotesque incarnation of humanitarian passion appealed somehow to one's imagination. At last Michaelis rose, and taking the great lady's extended hand, shook it, retained it for a moment in his great cushioned palm with unembarrassed friendliness, and turned upon the semi-private nook of the drawing-room his back, vast and square, and as if distended under the short tweed jacket. Glancing about in serene benevolence, he waddled along to the distant door between the knots of other visitors. The murmur of conversations paused on his passage. He smiled innocently at a tall, brilliant girl whose eyes met his accidentally and went out unconscious of the glances following him across the room. Michaelis's first appearance in the world was a success, a success of esteem unmarred by a single murmur of derision. The interrupted conversations were resumed in their proper tone, grave or light. Only a well-set-up, long-limbed, active-looking man of forty talking with two ladies near a window remarked aloud with an unexpected depth of feeling. Eighteen stone, I should say, and not five foot six. Poor fellow. It's terrible. Terrible. The lady of the house, gazing absently at the assistant commissioner, left alone with her on the private side of the screen, seemed to be rearranging her mental impressions behind her thoughtful immobility of a handsome old face. Men with grey moustaches and full, healthy, vaguely smiling countenances approached, circling round the screen. Two mature women with a matronly air of gracious resolution, a clean-shaved individual with sunken cheeks, and dangling a gold-mounted eyeglass on a broad black ribbon with an old-world dandified effect. A silence deferential, but full of reserves, reigned for a moment, and then the great lady exclaimed, not with resentment, but with a sort of protesting indignation, "'And that officially is supposed to be a revolutionist! What nonsense!' She looked hard at the assistant commissioner, who murmured apologetically, not a dangerous one, perhaps. Not dangerous? I should think not indeed. He is a mere believer. It's the temperament of a saint, declared the great lady in a firm tone. And they kept him shut up for twenty years. One shudders at the stupidity of it. 
and now they have let him out. Everybody belonging to him is gone away somewhere or dead. His parents are dead. The girl he was to marry has died while he was in prison. He has lost the skill necessary for his manual occupation. He told me all this himself with the sweetest patience, but then he said he had had plenty of time to think out things for himself. A pretty compensation. If that's the stuff revolutionists are made of, some of us may well go on their knees to them she continued in a slightly bantering voice, while the banal society smiles hardened on the worldly faces turned towards her with conventional deference. The poor creature is obviously no longer in a position to take care of himself. Somebody will have to look after him a little. He should be recommended to follow a treatment of some sort, the soldierly voice of the active-looking man was heard advising earnestly from a distance. He was in the pink of condition for his age, and even the texture of his long frock-coat had a character of elastic soundness, as if it were a living tissue. The man is virtually a cripple, he added, with unmistakable feeling. Other voices, as if glad of the opening, murmured hasty compassion. Quite startling. Monstrous. Most painful to see. The lank man, with the eyeglass on a broad ribbon, pronounced mincingly the word grotesque, whose justness was appreciated by those standing near him. They smiled at each other. End of chapter 6, part 1